You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Roses are red, violets are blue. I don't want our arranged marriage, so I'm going to have you exiled and imprisoned, and yes, I'm willing to go to war over it. The story of Blanche of Bourbon and Pedro the Cruel is hardly the stuff Hallmark cards are made of. You'd probably be able to guess that when one of the parties carries the moniker, The Cruel. Pedro was a Castilian king who loved his mistress and hated basically everyone else. Being king, though, Pedro was obligated to marry someone suitable, so he was pressured by his advisors into marrying the 16-year-old French princess. The two were wed with great pomp and ceremony. On the third day, the groom had his bride spirited away and locked up, so he could return to his mistress, with whom he had ten children. What can I say? Love hurts. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Today is Tuesday, February 12th, which means it's two days until Valentine's Day, or as we call it at our house, Bob Liberation Day, in honor of the date my husband's divorce from his first wife was finalized with the courts. Some of us have a love story for the ages, but not for the reasons we would have wanted. Today we're looking at some of history's worst breakups or generally most toxic relationships. There will be talk of very bad behavior and some references to mental health. In 1812, Caroline Lamb, the aristocratic wife of future British Prime Minister William Lamb, embarked on a tempestuous public affair with the celebrated poet George Gordon Byron, whom she described as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Byron described Lamb as the cleverest, most agreeable, absurd, amiable, perplexing, dangerous, fascinating little being that lives. Byron shot to stardom with his narrative poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, published in 1812, and went on to become a major figure of the Romantic movement. Their relationship lasted less than a year, but what it lacked in length, it made up for in overtures. Byron gave Lamb a gold locket. She gave him a lock of hair. Pubic hair. A few months into their relationship, Lamb's husband William took her to Ireland, but it did little to quell the obsession. Lamb wanted a miniature painting of Byron that was in the possession of his publisher, John Murray. So she forged a letter from Byron that said Lamb could take whatever she wanted. The forgery was so convincing that when she gave the letter to Murray, he gave her the painting, no questions asked. Byron was not pleased. After months of negotiating, Lamb agreed to give back the painting in exchange for a lock of Byron's hair. Byron agreed to this but instead of sending his own hair, sent her a lock of his new girlfriend's hair. Lamb bought the ruse and sent the painting back. But that wasn't the end of it. Lamb burned Byron in effigy. Classic. 
Both Lamb and Byron used their split as an opportunity to exercise all of their angry feelings for a long time after the breakup. They both got pretty into it. Lamb remained seemingly obsessed with her former paramour and spread rumors that he was having an affair with his half-sister, who in 1814 gave birth to a child alleged to have been fathered by the poet. In 1816, following a brief disastrous marriage to William Lamb's cousin, Annabelle, the scandal-tainted Byron, who over the course of his life became notorious for his many affairs, left England permanently. That same year, Lamb published a novel, Glenarvan, which was loosely based on her relationship with the literary bad boy. He wrote mean things about the tell-all book, saying it wasn't so much a kiss-and-tell as a blank and publish. In 1824, the 36-year-old Byron died from illness in modern-day Greece, where he'd gone to help support the war for Greek independence from the Ottoman Empire. And Lamb, who published several more novels, died four years later. Think about how bad the average person can be during a breakup. Then imagine that person with the nearly unchallenged power of half the known world. Emperor Nero and Poppy Sabina make today's philandering politicians look tame. Picture a Roman version of Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. Add in wealth and wit, and you have Poppy. Naturally, the Roman Emperor Nero decided that she must be his soulmate. Never mind the fact that Nero was married to someone else. He didn't. So he married Poppy off to his friend Otho to keep her near at hand, hoping that Otho would be too busy with other women to pay much attention to her. Mistake number one. Otho fell in love with Poppy. Nero was not allowed in their house and was reduced to begging outside to see her. Otho was then banished to Lusitania, leaving Poppy able to remarry. However, Nero still had his pesky spouse. He eventually divorced her, and when the public objected, had her killed, making room for Poppy and Nero to be together. They had a daughter, who died shortly after birth. You'll be shocked to hear that their relationship was rocky and short-lived. This was Nero, after all. Roman emperors were a zany lot, so you know someone who stands out from that crowd can't be described as well-adjusted. One night, after Nero had been at the races and brothels, Poppy, who was pregnant at the time, began yelling at him. The argument turned physical, and Nero stomped her to death. He was equally twisted in his mourning, castrating a slave boy named Sporus who looked a bit like Poppy and using him as a stand-in, even marrying him. When Nero died, an ambitious politician seized Sporos as a trapping of the throne, though he was killed by his own guards before he could make a real play for the empire. Poor Sporos was then forced to marry Otho, Poppy's ex, who killed himself after being emperor for only three months. And Sporos then became property of Emperor Vitellius, but rather than treating Sporos as a wife, Vitellius treated him as an undesirable holdover of his predecessor. Vitellius humiliated Sporos in public, even planning a public spectacle at his expense in the arena. But Sporos had understandably had enough and took his own life. Before investing your heart, soul, and furniture into a relationship, look at how your partner is about their exes. If their relationship history can be summed up as divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, maybe don't move in with them. 
Yeah, there was no way we could do this episode without Henry VIII. In addition to being quite the foodie, Henry VIII was an accomplished theologian and musician, and is considered the father of the English Navy, among other things. But if you ask someone today what they know about him, the only thing they'll remember is that he chopped off his wife's head. Henry VIII famously wed his way through six wives. Two of the unlucky brides would be decapitated, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Henry VIII had broken from the Catholic Church in order to annul his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon and wed Anne, who he'd been seeing for six years and was already pregnant with their daughter, the future Queen Elizabeth I. When Anne didn't conceive a son, and thus provide an heir for Henry, Anne was charged with incest, witchcraft, adultery, and conspiracy, and sentenced to death. On the scaffolding, moments before her execution, Anne spoke with poise and mercy, maintaining that Henry was the godliest, noblest, and gentlest prince that is, and asking Jesus to save him. How many of our exes would do that? Speaking of Henry's, the eighth's ancestor, Henry II, had a marriage that deserves inclusion here, too. Eleanor of Aquitaine already had one wedding under her belt, an annulled marriage to French King Louis VII, when she married Henry of Anjou in 1152. Two years later, he became Henry II, King of England. Whatever those two were doing at the time, you can bet that it was supercharged, from begetting heirs, they had eight children, to fighting. Although their marriage produced five sons and three daughters, the relationship suffered tremendous arguments, long swaths of ambivalence, and Henry's rampant philandering. They separated in 1167, and in 1173, Eleanor supported three of her sons in open revolt against Henry. Whether for political reasons, to have more control over her own hereditary lands, or because of Henry's long-standing mistress, Rosamond de Clifford, Eleanor urged her sons to war against their father more than once. They didn't win, and Eleanor found herself under house arrest, i.e. locked in a tower, until Henry's death in 1189. Maybe sparing her life was proof of his love. It's more likely that Henry could never have seriously considered killing her, given that most of Europe, and his own sons, had too much respect for Eleanor for execution to have been an option. Bonus breakup, Henry's infidelities caused more than one relationship issue, as he allegedly slept with his son Richard's fiancée, seriously straining relations between father and son, the son who would go on to be called Lionheart, as well as between himself and the fiancé's father, the King of France. Although Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine's marriage certainly contained more passion, Isabella and Edward II's had a worse ending. Historians have long speculated that Edward II was homosexual, which would explain his coldness toward his French wife, although she did bear him children. Nevertheless, it's likely that Isabella outright hated her husband for his casual neglect, his foolish favoritism of courtiers, and his disastrous ruling style. Possibly all three, and more besides. Like Eleanor, Isabella led her son in open war with his father, although this time, the public was on her side, and she conquered, placing her teenage son on his father's throne. The new Edward III, under the advice of his mother and her new lover, 
had his father imprisoned where he likely met his death, though many tales have been told about this. Whether Edward II was killed via hot poker, the same legendary fate as Peter the Great, died by starvation, or escaped to live out his life in hiding, his marriage to Isabella was an utter disaster by anyone's standards. Old-timey times had royalty of bloodline, but in America, our royals are celebrities, especially of the Hollywood variety. Me, I don't do celebrity stuff, so I tagged in two friends of mine, Eric and James, from over at the Fan Theory World podcast. Hi, my name is Eric. And I'm James. And we are the hosts for Fan Theory World. It's not uncommon for people who have recently gone through a breakup to find themselves neck deep in their favorite fandoms as a means of distraction. Or if you're nerds like us, you let your nerd flag fly no matter what your relationship status is. And the people who bring our geeky fascinations to life on the big screen go through some pretty ugly breakups that, well, try as they might, are never kept a secret. That's right. So let's dive into some celebrity breakups, including one that I like to call the drama pit. Uh, that's two T's as in Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston were the celebrity couple in the late 90s, early 2000s, just as Pitt was hitting his stride as a big-time movie star. But in 2004, they split up when it was discovered that he was having an affair with Angelina Jolie on the set of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, or so goes the rumor. Fans were so torn on this that it spawned a wave of Team Aniston and Jolie shirts. Brad and Angelina went on to raise six children, but were split up by 2017 for unclear reasons. Wow, Eric. You went right for modern-day Hollywood drama. But what about the golden age of Hollywood, before rumors were portrayed as facts? Uh, what about Elizabeth Taylor? Uh, her seven marriages make the drama pit look like something out of a sitcom. Uh, there's probably a fan theory in there waiting to be written equating her seven marriages to the seven deadly sins. But anyway, Elizabeth Taylor... She got her start because of her deep blue eyes framed by dark double eyelashes. She went on to star in about 52 movies, including Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, National Velvet, Giant, and Cleopatra. Liz Taylor may have played Cleopatra, but she really was the queen of divorce. Her first marriage was more of a publicity stunt than anything. She got hitched to the hotel chain heir. Conrad Hilton Jr. It was highly publicized and funded by MGM Studios as a promotion for uh, Vicente Minnelli's comedy, Father of the Bride. There were only 600 guests in attendance compared to the 3,000 fans that showed up outside the church during the ceremony. Also, if she would have stayed with Hilton, she would have been related to Paris Hilton. Scary. <laughs> yeah, bullet dodge there, because the marriage only lasted nine months. MGM actually reprimanded her for causing a huge public scandal by casting her in a B-movie, ironically named Love is Better Than Ever. Her next marriage was a year later to British film actor Michael Wilding. She was soon pregnant, which officially ended her first contract with MGM. Michael Wilding was 20 years older than her, which eventually led to that divorce five years later. Next, she married producer Mike Todd. Less than a year later, Todd died in a plane crash. While Elizabeth grieved, she continued to work, claiming that acting was the only time she could function normally. Liz Taylor quickly moved on to married singer Eddie Fisher in a scandal that turned her public image from grieving widow to homewrecker. 
MGM again capitalized on her personal image by posing her in a bed in negligee for the movie poster for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Her next marriage was to Richard Burton in 1964, although they were engaged in an affair four years prior while filming Cleopatra. Regardless, Richard Burton and Liz Taylor became the power couple of Hollywood, staying married for ten years. They starred in multiple movies with each other, but their last movie together was 1973's Divorce His, Divorce Hers, which was a fitting title since they were divorced the following year. They had a brief revival as a couple in 1975, but were divorced again in 1976. We have to be done by now, right? No, that was only five out of seven husbands. The same year she divorced Richard Burton for the second time, she married Republican Senator John Warner. Her final marriage was in 1991, staying married to construction worker Larry Fortensky for five years. It's also worth mentioning that in the 90s, Liz went beyond the relationship drama, becoming one of the first celebrities to participate in HIV and AIDS activism, including her role on Captain Planet in the episode A Formula for Hate. Oh, we should totally do a Captain Planet episode on our show. If any gentle listeners out there know of any good Captain Planet fan theories, we would love to hear them. You can email us at fantheoryworld at gmail.com and find us almost anywhere you can find podcasts. Again, that's Fan Theory World, exploring the theories on all of your favorite shows, movies, video games, and more. Thank you, Moxie. Thanks, guys. Be sure to check out their show for fan theories ranging from the engagingly plausible to the downright bizarre. They were nice enough to have me on to talk about Game of Thrones, another bastion of unhealthy relationships. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When Gustav Mahler died in 1911, his widow Alma first sought comfort in the arms of her already lover, Walter Gropius. However, Alma still resented Gropius for, quote, intentionally misaddressing an envelope and thus exposing their affair to Gustav. So she engaged in a brief but passionate affair with a Viennese biologist. He turned out to be possessive, with an unseemly morbid streak, so she turned her attention to the young and highly eccentric painter Oskar Kokoschka. Kokoschka was a key figure in the development of Expressionism and an accomplished dramatist, but he was also volatile, angry, aggressive, and violent. They met in 1912 when Kokoschka spontaneously produced a drawing of Alma while she was playing piano. Hours later, he asked her to become his wife, an offer she politely declined. Nevertheless, their unbridled passion over the next three years was only interrupted long enough for Alma to pose as a model for his paintings. 
One painting was featured at the 26th exhibition of the Berlin Secession in the spring of 1913. Walter Gropius was one of the organizers of the event, and we might well imagine his surprise at seeing his lover publicly holding hands with Kokoschka. Gropius had always suspected that Alma was keeping secrets about her relationship with Kokoschka, but being confronted by the truth in such a public way affected him deeply. I know a girl who basically did this to someone. I'll tell you about it someday. Kokoschka was plagued by obsessive jealousy. He waited until four in the morning outside of Alma's apartment to make sure that no one snuck out in the dead of night. Alma had reverently arranged a number of her photographs around a bust of her late husband Gustav Mahler's head, and Kokoschka would passionately kiss the photographs, apparently to spite Gustav. Even Kokoschka's mother got involved, writing to Alma, quote, If you see Oscar again, I'll shoot you dead. They were still unable to control themselves. After emotionally tumultuous trips to the Swiss Alps and Naples, Kokoschka fashioned his most famous painting of their relationship, Die Winsbrot, The Tempest, shows the lovers side by side sheltering from a ferocious storm. Alma looks peaceful and content, but Kokoschka's face shows signs of worry. Maybe he was finally realizing his relationship with Alma was unsustainably unhealthy. Things got even more complicated when Alma became pregnant with his child, and her decision to terminate the pregnancy drove Kokoschka into a depression that he addressed by volunteering for the front lines of World War I, where he was seriously wounded in Russia in 1915. Meanwhile, Gropius was recovering in a Berlin hospital from his own war wounds. Alma rushed to his side, and they were married later that year. The news devastated Kokoschka, who took another non-standard approach to deal with his emotions. He ordered a life-size doll from a Munich doll maker. The doll was to resemble Alma in every little detail, including the incipient hollows and wrinkles that are important to me. Please make it possible that my sense of touch will be able to take pleasure in those parts where the layers of fat and muscle suddenly give way to a sinuous covering of skin. The final product, rather predictably, didn't live up to Kokoschka's desires. He writes, After I had drawn it and painted it over and over again, I decided to do away with it. It had managed to cure me completely of my passion. So I gave a big champagne party with chamber music, during which my maid Hulda exhibited the doll in all its beautiful clothes for the last time. When dawn broke, I was quite drunk, as was everyone else. I beheaded it out in the garden and broke a bottle of red wine over its head. His expressionist drama Orpheus and Eurydice of 1918 also reflects his failure of his love for Alma. It was set to music by Alma's son-in-law, Ernest Krennic, as an opera in three acts. Kokoschka was Orpheus, Alma was Eurydice, and wouldn't you know it, Gustav Mahler appeared as Pluto, god of the underworld. This is a really tricky episode for me to segue into my Patreon spiel, so there was the pivot right there. I hope you liked it. The day this episode comes out is the last day to get in on the special offer at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Joining at any tier gets you a custom laser-cut keychain made by my aforementioned husband Bob and two bonus mini-episodes a month. One came out just a few days ago, 
on the sordid and absurd history of putting animals on trial. The donation sharing plan will continue after the special offer, though. Once I've met my goal to cover expenses, I will begin to share your member contributions with people who make free resources for creators like myself and with charities suggested by our patrons, so there's never a bad time to join. No matter how good you are at writing books, it doesn't give you a free pass to go around stabbing people. In 1960, Norman Mailer and Adele Morales threw a party where Mailer announced his intention to run for mayor of New York City. That night, Mailer was drinking heavily and wearing a ruffled bullfighter shirt. He began challenging people to step outside and fight. He returned to the party with a black eye, bragging about how he was one of the greatest writers the world had ever known. Adele replied that he was no Dostoevsky, and dared him to come at her, insulting him in colorful and graphic language. Mailer responded by grabbing a penknife and stabbing her in the chest, then in the back, telling the rest of the crowd to leave her to die. Adele did eventually receive medical care and a divorce. The rest of her life was spent in poverty. Mailer got off without criminal charges or even much damage to his reputation, a gender double standard that feels frustratingly familiar. Male writers, especially male writers during the 1960s, writes Jennifer Wright, author of It Ended Badly, somehow tricked people into thinking they were demigods because they had an understanding of language. Breakups are still terrible, she says, but these days nobody's going to behead their spouse, at least not legally. Jennifer Wright's silver medal choice for bad medieval breakup is that of the marriage between two powerful Italian families, the Sforzas and the Borgias. Lucrezia Borgia, yes, that one, and Giovanni Sforza broke up shortly after their marriage in 1493, and her father, Pope Alexander VI, tried to persuade Giovanni to annul the marriage on the grounds of his impotence. Giovanni pointed out some pretty convincing evidence to the contrary, namely all of his illegitimate children, and he refused. That's when the mudslinging started. Giovanni spread rumors claiming that Lucretia was sleeping with her father and brothers, papacy notwithstanding. Under intense pressure, i.e. death threats, Giovanni caved and agreed to the annulment lie. The trouble was, Lucretia was now in the difficult position of having to swear to be a virgin while very, very pregnant. The Borgia family decided not to get bogged down in details and proceed as though she wasn't pregnant, essentially daring anyone to bring it up. And it totally worked. The marriage was annulled on the grounds that Giovanni was impotent and Lucretia was a virgin. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. We've all gone through the gauntlet at one time or another of a bad breakup or an unhealthy relationship. But if you look hard enough, you can always find a silver lining. When Olinka Vistika, a film producer, and Drazen Grubisik, a sculptor, and my apologies to them if they ever hear this because that can't be how their names are pronounced, when they broke up in 2003 after four years together, they had accumulated enough stuff to fill a museum. Three years later, they decided to open one. They asked friends to contribute items from their own failed relationships and curated exhibit in their hometown of Zagreb, Croatia. 
The exhibit eventually toured the world, collecting cast-off mementos, love letters, and forget-me-nots along the way. In 2010, the Museum of Broken Relationships settled into its permanent spot in Zagreb's Upper Town neighborhood. It was awarded the 2011 Kenneth Hudson Award for being the most innovative museum in Europe. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And whether you're with a partner or alone, raise a glass on Bob Liberation Day. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.